Today's Planet Football Podcast is brought to you by FreshBooks. For freelancers and small business owners, FreshBooks takes the pain out of accounting. Have a question about the service? A real live human will answer every call in about three rings. Get your 30-day free trial by going to freshbooks.com planet and entering promo code planet. Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I am SI.com soccer editor Avi Creditor, joined today by a stacked roster. We've got SI senior writer Grant Wall, SI.com's Brian Strauss, SI.com's Ben Littleton, and later on we have an interview between Grant and rising American star Christian Pulisic, who just made his debut for Borussia Dortmund's first team. So stick around for that. Uh, but there is a ton going on around the world of soccer. Grant, I want to start with you with, with what happened late last night. Uh, the U.S. US soccer suing the U.S. Women's National Team's player union. Uh, they're in a labor dispute. Uh, just, just give us the, the quick, the Cliff Notes version, I guess, if you can, of, of what's going on and, and why this is so important. Well, on the face of it, the optics don't look good here. Uh, you've got the U.S. Soccer Federation filing a lawsuit in Chicago federal court against the world champion uh, U.S. women's players. Uh, their union represents them, and, and they filed it on a day that happened to be National Girls and Women in Sport Day, uh, which, you know, uh, quite a, a message that kind of said. But when you actually look at what this action is, uh, it's part of what soccer is trying to do to establish, is there a collective bargaining agreement right now between uh, U.S. soccer and the U.S. women's national team players? Because uh, U.S. soccer says that there is a labor agreement that goes through the end of 2016 after the Olympics. The U.S. women's players, uh, their executive director, Rich Nichols, says that there is not. Uh, and basically, this goes back to the fact that the actual collective bargaining agreement uh, was never totally redone. They signed a memorandum of understanding back in 2013 uh, that U.S. soccer says extends to the end of 2016. Uh, Rich Nichols, uh, the players rep, says that no, he actually uh, does not view that as something that goes to the end of 2016. So uh, U.S. Soccer says that they filed this lawsuit because Nichols told them that uh, the players could actually go on strike, have a work stoppage as soon as February 24th, three days after the Olympic qualifying tournament uh, is over. And uh, Nichols told me he actually denied that he had threatened they would go on strike then. So uh, just quite a, you know, it's a dispute uh, over the facts of, of what's going on here. And uh, we'll see what the court says. If the court says uh, that this labor agreement is valid through the end of the year, that'll be a victory for U.S. soccer. If uh, they don't, uh, then that's a victory for the players. And they could potentially threaten a work stoppage before the Olympics. Yeah. And that, that's just an ugly situation, obviously. And and you would think that, that the players would have, have the power here, right? I mean, it's it's at a time when when you know uh, female athlete equality is is such a hot button issue especially with this women's national team and a lot of the players on it um and and just going through an, an ugly legal dispute uh, is probably not what u.s soccer is, is ideally hoping for um so definitely a story to watch develop uh over the next few weeks uh most importantly and then as we get closer to rio no definitely you know and, and I, I think too it's something to keep in mind here on the one hand 
U.S. soccer does pay its women's players more than other associations in the world do, but the players feel like they aren't treated equally with the U.S. men's team, and they point out things uh, like the amount of money they get per point earned in a World Cup group stage. Uh, the men get it, the women don't. Uh, they also point out travel situations as far as uh, the U.S. men get to fly business class a heck of a lot more than the U.S. women do. Uh, and also the field conditions. Uh, the U.S. women are saying we play on artificial turf a lot, whereas the U.S. men never do. Exactly, exactly. Um, well, again, uh, thank you for, for kind of breaking it down. I know it, it can be some, some dense material, especially if you are able to, to flip through the, in, the entire legal proceedings. Um, but again, uh, a huge story uh, on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. Let's shift to the other side and, and bring in Ben Littleton. Uh, ben, Pep Guardioli makes his choice. He's going to Manchester City, surprising not that many people at all. Um, what, what does this mean for the Premier League? What does it mean for, for Guardiola? Uh, there, there are just so many ripples that, that this, that this kind of gives off. Well, it's really interesting, and it's the combination of uh, three and a half years hard courtship I guess you could say from the two guys who run the sporting side of City Chiki Bagirastain who's the sporting director and the chief executive Ferran Soriano now those two are the guys that appointed Guardiola at Barcelona in 2008 and as soon as they got to City in 2012 they wanted Guardiola and they worked on it and there were opportunities for Chelsea and Manchester United to try and signed Guardiola in the intervening years, none of which were taken. Um, he was at Bayern, but they could have spoken to him about coming to their clubs. And so it w you always felt that City would be the, the ultimate destination because of that Barcelona connection. And in a way, because those two guys made it clear that they would do anything to, to get him. In a way, they've built an infrastructure, an academy um, that is perfect for, for what Guardiola wants. The infrastructure is there and the main reason they want him is to get European success the one thing that has eluded City in this new era is getting anywhere close to the Champions League closing stages it's amazing that even after six years in the competition they still haven't reached further than the last 16 now they the irony is they probably will do that this season Pellegrini's last because they've got a uh, one of the one of the better draws they're playing Dinamo Kiev later this month they should win that. So they'll get through to the last eight. But to really be a regular like Bayern, Real Madrid and Barcelona have been in the last five years in the latter stages, they need someone that they see as a step up from, from Pellegrini. And that is probably going to be Guardiola. Now, the questions that that leaves us with are, are many. Which players is he going to bring in? Which coaches are, are, are going to be left for Manchester United and Chelsea to to eventually appoint where does Pellegrini go next and what will it be like for for Pep at City because as we've seen at Bayern Munich he's not necessarily an easy coach to have he fell out with the with a doctor who'd been at the club for 38 years last year which resulted in the doctor leaving the club um, he's quite hard work he's he's an obsessive he's a perfectionist he's an innovator we might see new tactics in in the league we'll certainly see more versatile players coming in but it's not going to be the smooth controversy free city that we're used to under Pellegrini where every kind of Jose Mourinho bait is shut down straight away and press conferences are known for 
for, for drawing out straight bats and nothing else. I think it's going to be quite uh, tumultuous. Um, and that can only be a good thing for, for the Premier League. Absolutely. It's almost... Do you see a lot of parallels in, in how he went to Bayern Munich from Barcelona? The fact that Bayern Munich, I mean, they did win everything. I'm not saying Manchester City is going to do that this year, but under another manager, and then he comes in and has to improve on that, and, and winning the league isn't enough. And now here's Manchester City. They could easily win the league this year. Like you said, they've got a, a very clear path to the quarterfinals at the very least of Champions League. Uh, how much improvement can he really, really make uh, for for this side, especially in in three years, because we know he's he's not sticking around for five or eight. That's that's just not what he does. Yeah, well, I'd be interested to uh, to know what Grant thinks of this, but I think there's a lot of improvement that can be made um, in the City side. And in a way, when Bayern won that treble, you thought, how can he possibly improve on that? And yet he has, even though they haven't gone as deep in, in Champions League, they haven't reached a Champions League final yet, you could say that some of the individual performances have far exceeded anything that, that Bayern achieved under Heinkers beating Roma 7-1 and some of the Champions League performances against Manchester City. They, they have been utterly unbelievable. The 15-minute spell against Wolfsburg earlier this season when Lewandowski scored five goals. You know, some of the performances really have transcended the modern game. And so from that point of view, I think there is quite a lot that City can improve on. I think it, it says more about the standard of the Premier League itself, that City are still favourites to win it despite some of the weaknesses they've got. I mean, their centre-backs, uh, you know, are not in great shape. Um, there are issues in, in the central midfield, and I, I think it's still a side in transition. Now, Guardiola could turn City into a dominant force in England in a way that Bayern are dominant in the Bundesliga. And that's one thing that could happen. But again, the, the priority is is Europe. And I think if City get their recruitment right, and Guardiola will, I presume, play some role in that, then I think we could see City being champions for the next few years. Grant, uh, real quick before we move on from from this, what's your what are your thoughts on on how Guardiola could potentially improve City and and take them to that next level? Well, it's kind of interesting. I've been on a ten day Europe trip that I'm finally ending uh, now, but uh, have visited both Bayern Munich and Manchester City uh, in the last week, and uh, my takeaways actually were. A few things. I got a tour of the Manchester City grounds, which are just incredible. Uh, the training uh, academy or the training sites, the academy they've built. Uh, it's all on the same site as their stadium, uh, which is pretty rare uh, in world soccer. And uh, it's almost as if they built this entire, just overwhelmingly impressive facility and infrastructure uh, to impress Guardiola to put Guardiola in there as the human software to take Manchester City to the next level. Uh, and for them, that has to be winning uh, Champions Leagues, you know, not just Premier League titles. Um, you know, and at Bayern Munich, it was interesting because, um, you know, sort of like what Ben was saying, there's a real respect for the process of Pep Guardiola on a day-to-day -day basis and how he prepares his team, not just for games against the top teams in Europe, but for every game they have, it's just, I'm told, an insane level of detail. Uh, and so the process that Guardiola goes through uh, is on another level. Everyone tells me this. And 
uh, the results haven't always been there in Europe for him at Bayern. And so there's going to be another group of people that looks at Pep Guardiola at Bayern and says, you have not won the UEFA Champions League yet. And that's true. They haven't reached a final. And so for some of those people, he, his tenure at Bayern will not be viewed as successful unless they win this year's Champions League. Uh, so I guess it depends on how you look at it. I sat down with Xabi Alonso yesterday, and uh, he went on a long description of all the things he's learned from Pep Guardiola, which is the reason he came to Bayern. Uh, he wants to be a coach someday. And, uh, you know, it's it, the sort of reverence that he speaks about Guardiola with is uh, is pretty remarkable. Can I just cut in there, Grant? Because when you talk about Xabi Alonso as a potential coach, I can't think of another player that has had more impressive coaches that he's played under and learned from because Javi Alonso has had everyone I mean he started his career at Sociedad who I think uh, were coached at that stage by Reynold Dunuex the famous French mentor to so many players who played for Nantes in the 80s then he was at Liverpool under Rafa Benitez Real Madrid Mm -hmm. under Jose Mourinho and Pellegrini and Ancelotti and then he's had three years with Guardiola and then he's going to get Ancelotti again I mean, if that's not a finishing school, I don't know what is. <laughs> Great point. You know, I think Xabi Alonso, if he wants to be a coach, and it sounds like he does, uh, could be a very, very good one. Um, you know, he said to me that, you know, the reason he signed for another year at Bayern was because, you know, he felt like Ancelotti was a guy he knew well and looked forward to playing under again. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it was kind of fun talking to him and just hearing uh, – you can't fake that sort of reverence for, for managers, and he feels that way about Pep. Uh, okay, moving on. Uh, Manchester City, they play Leicester City on Saturday, uh, early Saturday in, in the U.S. on the eastern coast. It's very early on the west coast. Um, and <laughs> this game's for first place. I don't think anybody in any right mind. I think Leicester was 5,000 to 1 to win the title at the start of the season. Uh, so the fact that this game is is deciding who's first place 25 games into the season is remarkable. Leicester City is coming in off of a win against Liverpool, Ben, where Jamie Vardy scored potentially the goal of the season. Yet we might have also just seen the goal of the season a couple weeks ago uh, from Tottenham's uh, Deli Alley. What, which which one do you prefer? Which one do you think was was better? Oh, that's such a hard question because they're so different. <laughs> they're know. just both spectacular and and what's interesting is they both came in at really important moments of really important games so Spurs was one all uh, against Crystal Palace with about eight minutes to go and Ali who hadn't not had a great game created something out of out of nothing and scored a goal and Spurs went on to win now in the old days and by that I mean any point in the last 20 years Spurs would not have won that game um, but there's something different about the group at the moment and it makes me think it's the reason why the coach was not that desperate for a new face to come in, even though nominally Spurs only have one striker in their squad, Harry Kane. And in the January transfer window, all the fans were pushing and pushing the chairman to sign someone else. But I think the coach actually held firm and said, you know what, we've got a good, strong harmony in this group. And I think the downside of potentially threatening that is uh, stronger than the upside of having someone who can come in and make a small difference. So that's why they didn't buy anyone. Um, and Ali is one of these guys that can make things happen out of nowhere, as is Vardy, where in a game that was goalless with half an hour on the clock, he got ran onto a, a, a fantastic pass from deep by Mares, 
and just scored a goal that really sums up his season. 17 goals, England caps. Um, it was kind of no coincidence that one of the people in the crowd for that night was uh, was the Hollywood script writer who was said to be writing the 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 script to his story. Um, because you just you can't make it up. Every time you think that they they've run out of steam or it's not going to happen for them, they keep on winning and they beat Spurs in the league uh, early last month with a with a late header. Um, they beat Chelsea the, in, in the result that that ended Jose Mourinho's career. They drew, um, well, I say career, career at Chelsea, I should say, <laughs> this time. Sorry. Uh, 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 you know, they drew against Manchester United in December. They drew nil-nil against City. And we talk about Vardy all the time, and with good reason. But their defence is sensational as well. Three clean sheets in their, um, in their last four games. They are hard to break down. And every time we think it's going to end for them, they keep on surprising us. Now, the next two games are away at City, and away at Arsenal. But honestly, if they get three points from that, or even two points from that, which is possible, they are um, not not favourites, but they certainly uh, doesn't look like they're going to drop out of the top four anytime soon. I mean, they're five points clear of Arsenal and three clear of City. At some point, we have to start saying they're not going to fade away. This is actually on. And when that point comes, which I think is very soon, then we see how they react. Because even now, there is still no pressure on them. But once the pressure starts to come on them, and that will happen, I think, after these two games, then it will be really interesting. But they have actually quite a good run of, of games after that Arsenal game. So they play Norwich, West Brom, Watford, Newcastle, you know, some teams down the bottom, some teams in the middle, Palace, Southampton, Sunderland. And then their last three games are quite tight. Away at Manchester United home to Everton, and then you could not make this up, away at Chelsea, where Claudio Ranieri used to coach Chelsea, who might be fighting relegation, might be trying to get in the top four, will probably be somewhere in between the two, against Leicester on the last day. Will If Leicester need to win that game to win the title, that would, that would be a story made for Hollywood. And who would bet against Vardy providing the, the winning goal? That would be it's a something. fantastic story. All neutrals in England want Leicester to do it. Of course, of course. Why? Why not? Uh, it's it's an unbelievable story. And and let's if if they get to that point at Stamford Bridge, we we would imagine there would be a scriptwriter in in the state. Uh, it's it's really it's baffling. And like you said, every time you expect them to fall off, they don't. They come back and they do these amazing things like like Jamie Vardy's goal. Grant, uh, if you had to pick Vardy or or Ali, which which one you got? Well, both are fantastic goals. Uh, I do think it's a matter of taste when it comes to rating, ranking goals. Um, and for me, the Deli Alley one uh, is slightly more transcendent than the Jamie Vardy one. But good point by Ben. Both were really important goals for their team. But just the, the sort of multi-phased approach that Alley took, to me, uh, was, I guess, slightly more breathtaking uh, than the Thunderbolt from Jamie Vardy, which reminded me a lot of Clint Dempsey's goal for Fulham uh, a few years ago uh, when he was just on fire uh, in the Premier League. But, um, you know, I was watching the game uh, in a bar here in uh, in Dusseldorf, and I just let out a scream when the Vardy goal went in because it, it, it was one of those sort of involuntary things when you see it. 
um, you know, Leicester deserved to win that game against Liverpool. And, uh, you know, we're going to learn a lot from them in the next two games at Man City, at Arsenal. But they put themselves in a position that uh, even if they lose both these games, they're not out of it. They're not out of it for the title even. And so this great story is going to continue and keep building week after week. And if you're into storytelling like we are, uh, it doesn't get much better than this in sports. Do we have any bar video footage of your involuntary scream in Dusseldorf? <laughs> and unfortunately, no, but it would be interesting to see the reactions of some of the Germans uh, who were in there with me. <laughs> Uh, it's it's so funny, you know. We're, we're so quick to forget, uh, you know, past goals that have happened like this, right? Deli Ali, we're we're thinking, oh my god, I've never seen this before. Stephanie Roche was was nominated for the Puskas Award for doing very similar things. Now, obviously, not in, in the Premier League and not a game winning goal in the Premier League, but still uh, stylistically the same. And Grant, like you said, uh, Dempsey for Fulham against Stoke in in 2010, very similar technique, uh, and and a very well, a very exactly similar result. Yeah, um, other players have scored a similar goal to Vardy as well. I remember Torres doing it for Liverpool. I think Qualiarella did it for um, Sampdoria in, in Italy. And Peter Crouch has done it, believe it or not, for Stoke. So, you know, a, a high volley from outside the area, from an angle. Oh, and Kasami did one for uh, for Fulham a few years ago. It, you know, it's not as uncommon as you think, but this was a really big game. I think those games, are, you know, were not as big. This is, uh, you know, every game is now crucial to Leicester and and as I said at, at the moment he scored it, it if it's the second goal somehow it's it's not as great because it's not the the the, the game breaking uh moments whereas uh, you know to score the first goal of the game like that I think uh is really spectacular and look out for these guys Vardy and Ali are both English both tipped to be in the national team at the Euros this summer but will they play in their favorite positions will they play in their club positions under Roy Hodgson, it seems very unlikely. And will they play with the same freedom that they have for their clubs? Again, who knows? Because uh, if past history is anything to go by, English players who play fantastically for their clubs in the season before a tournament get to that tournament and suddenly the pressure makes them play in a different way. Let's see. Let's see indeed. Uh, Ben, I want to thank you so much for your time and for joining us. Uh, today, I want to take a quick break, but when we come back, we have Grant Wall sitting down at Borussia Dortmund one-on-one with Christian Pulisic. All over America, people are counting down to a huge event that demands everyone's attention. No, it's not the Super Bowl. It's not the election. It's tax season. For a better way to manage your books and make tax season easy, try FreshBooks a cloud accounting software designed exclusively for service-based small business owners. It's the personal accountant you've always needed right in your pocket. FreshBooks is fast. You can create and send an invoice in 30 seconds. It's easy for customers to pay online, and FreshBooks clients get paid five days faster than average. Have a question about the service? FreshBooks answers every call in five rings or less. Just contact their award-winning support team and get help from real live humans. They answer every call in about three rings. No phone tree, no, let me escalate that, no, I'll get back to you. Just helpful service at the drop of a hat. FreshBooks does all the heavy lifting on invoicing, expenses, and taxes. Right now, FreshBooks is offering our listeners 30 days of unrestricted use. Totally free, and you don't need a credit card to sign up. To get this 30-day free trial, just go to freshbooks.com planet and enter planet in the How You Heard About Us section. That's freshbooks.com planet and enter promo code planet. 
We're here in Dortmund, Germany, and we have a very special guest on the Planet Football podcast today. On Saturday, this American from Hershey, Pennsylvania, made his senior debut with Borussia Dortmund at age 17, becoming the eighth youngest player to debut in the history of the Bundesliga. Christian Pulisic, thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. First off, congratulations on making your senior debut uh, and getting the victory as well. Yeah, thank you very much. It was an important three points for us. Um, and I guess just to start, could you lead me through what you experienced from learning you were coming into th- this game to actually being in the game itself? Yeah, well, uh, I've been just training with the pros the, fa- the past few weeks, and then I knew I made the roster. I knew, of course, I was an attacking option, but once you get your name called and you're walking up to the sideline there, just the emotions are are crazy. And just to be able to go into a game like that, it was really exciting. Did it kind of meet your expectations once you got on the field? Yeah, I mean, I think it surpassed all expectations. I mean, that's just a dream of mine. And then going and looking at that yellow wall there as you're on the field, it's it's nothing that I can't explain it really, put it into words. You know, you came into this game, and it was actually 0-0 against Ingolstadt. You're with Dortmund uh, in second place in the Bundesliga. There was some real pressure coming late in that game to, to get the three points, which you ended up doing. Does it feel kind of cool that the, the manager would have that much confidence to bring you on for your debut in a situation like that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it really shows that our, our coach has trust in me, and then and that's a great feeling knowing it was a 0-0 game, and that's a really important three points that we needed at home. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great feeling. <laughs> uh, is there a particular cool moment, a particular image in your mind, either on the field or behind the scenes that day, that you'll always remember? Yeah, I would have to say as I'm walking up to go uh, sub in and there's a corner and I, I know I'm about to go in the next play and I sort of look around and this huge wave of emotions just, just kind of hits you really fast, goes through you in two seconds, just everything you've been through in your whole career, just knowing it led up to this moment and the way it hits you is just, it's a crazy feeling and yeah, I would, I'll never forget it the rest of my life. And for those of us and those who are listening who maybe haven't been to a game at Dortmund when you guys are playing. Could you just describe what that atmosphere is like, what the culture is like? Yeah, it's it's like no stadium I've ever seen before. Uh, everyone talks about this South Tribune there that's uh, just the – there's so many people standing there just yelling your name and yelling for the team and supporting the team and then just the whole rest of the stadium. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing uh, atmosphere there. <laughs> Uh, you've been training with the first team all the way through winter break uh, after moving up from Dortmund's under-17s and under-19s. Um, what's the most challenging thing for you to adjust to with the first team compared to the under-19 team? Yeah, I would say, of course, the physicality. Uh, definitely have to strengthen up, and these guys are strong. They've been doing it this their whole career, and... Yeah, a lot of learn, lots to learn there, and then just the speed of play is always picked up a little bit as you go up age groups. So you got to really know what you're going to do with the ball before it comes, and you got to be ready for that stuff. Now we're sitting here on the uh, the Dortmund training site, uh, and I, I want to ask because behind us here, you had just shown me before we started taping this machine that I is kind of legendary that Dortmund has yeah. uh, that helps train players, but can you explain a little more about what it is and, and how it works? 
yeah, I've actually used it a lot the past two years called the Footbonaut. And, uh, well, it's just a machine that really just, sh you'll see lights, it shoots out a ball, and then you'll see another light. You got to really be aware of your surroundings, looking around, finding the target that you then have to shoot it in. Mm -hmm. And then the next ball is coming right after quick. So it's, it's really good just for everything, your first touch, your awareness. And, yeah, it's really good improving, especially young players. That's cool because I've heard about this thing for a long time. Yeah. Um, now, when I was 17, I was a junior in high school who basically had no clue about living in the real world. Here you are at 17 playing in games that matter for the second place team in the Bundesliga. How have you been able to adjust so quickly to this world at such a young age? Yeah, it's, I think it's just been my preparation my whole life. This is, this is what I've, 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 everything I've worked towards, everything that I've trained for. And once the moment hits, you know you're ready for it because you've just prepared that much. There's no, yeah, there's no saying that I'm really completely ready for it at any time. But yeah, I'm just doing the best I can and enjoying the moments. And your dad's living over here with you? Yeah, he's living with me here. Okay. Yeah. So um, it must be helpful, I would think, to to have family over here so yeah. you're not just kind of on your own. Yeah, of course. It's nice having him here. He can always help support me and yeah. It's always good to have him. Nice. Um, so after this, after you record this with me, I hear you have a German lesson. Uh, how does that work? How long have you been working on learning German? Yeah, uh, almost two years that I've been here now. I've Last year I had it pretty much every weekday. This year a little bit less because of uh, time with going with the pros and everything. But I'm still I'm still into that. So, yeah, and it's really helped. I've got I've got to learn the language. That's a really important thing for me being here, especially. I want to know everything that's going on and what the coach is saying and how the other players speak to each other. So it's a really good yeah. No, oh, makes sense. Yeah. Um, now there's a good story on your development by Levy Bird of SI.com that's on our website right now. It just came out last week. Yeah. Um, I suggest everyone read that. Uh, but you grew up in Pennsylvania. Um, what was your path to joining Dortmund? Yeah, well, I played uh, for uh, just an academy team there, PA Classics in uh, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And then I was really scouted from there in tournaments, I believe. And I, I got called to the first U.S. youth national team, which was under 14. And yeah, I moved up in the age groups from there, under 15, under 17. And then in a tournament, a few tournaments, Dortmund was able to see me there, and then they wanted to bring me in for a trial, and then that's how the whole thing started. Okay. And so how old were you then when you came over to Dortmund? That would be two years ago, so 15, 16. Okay. You played for the U.S. in the Under-17 World Cup, um, and uh, a couple of days ago, Jurgen Klinsmann uh, talked at the U.S. camp about how happy he was for you that you were able to make your debut and things are going well here. Have you heard from Klinsman or Andy Herzog, his assistant with the U.S. staff? Uh, yeah, we, we, we've talked in the past a few times, but uh, yeah, I'm really happy with what's going on with the national team situation. Playing in a World Cup was just an honor, representing your, your home country in a mm -hmm. World Cup like that. It was, it was great. Yeah. Cool. Your Dortmund debut got a lot of attention in Germany and in the U.S., uh, you have big German newspapers calling you the American Jewel now. Uh, do you have a strategy to sort of keep your focus at this point? Yeah, well, I'm, I, I've always been sort of the same. I really just focus on what I'm doing. I, I try not to look at all the media and stuff. Obviously, I know, I know that it's there. Mm -hmm. But just focusing on my own training every single day, that's all I can really do. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have any 
keepsakes from the debut with the senior team that uh, you're going to have for the future? <laughs> keepsakes? Like like jerseys, maybe, I, uh, yeah. or anything like Unfortunately, that? Unfortunately, I, I wasn't. I, I guess the moment was just too big for me. I kind of <laughs> just put my jersey back in the laundry basket. <laughs> so I wasn't thinking too much about that. I probably should have been smarter, but... <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I'll just have to always keep the memories with me in my head. That's all I can really share. So. So, some people say that's the better way to do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have plenty of chances to keep jerseys. In the Maybe future. I'll have to talk to the kit man, though, <laughs> see if I can get that one back. Yeah, sure. Um, let's see here. Um, did you see the support that you got from the U.S. on Saturday, whether it was on social media or other places? Yeah, I saw a lot of stuff on social media, Twitter and Instagram and that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's amazing knowing that I have so many supporters from back home. It's just a great feeling, and that's what really drives me to to keep doing it and uh, accomplish even more. Cool. Um, so I wanted to ask you about, I heard you watched a game here with the fans on the famous Yellow Wall. And yeah. I don't know if they call it the yellow wall here. That's what... The, it, Gelvand, yeah. Okay. It's, it's translated the same, yeah. Okay. So what was the circumstance of that? And, and tell me the story. Yeah. Uh, I actually... The first time I was I was on this yellow wall was... Uh, it was a really hot day in Germany, so 80, 90 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And yeah, it, it was just a crazy experience. You're so close to all these fans together. And the support is just unbelievable. How, how much it means to them and... Being a part of that and then going from there to stepping on the field and knowing that they're behind me, supporting me in that same place, is, yeah, it's, it's a crazy feeling. It's an amazing feeling. How many thousands of fans are we talking about in that one stand? I, I believe, do you know, 20,000? 25,000, I believe. Really? It's about 25,000 fans, yeah, just all so close together, jumping up and down, supporting their team. It's it's crazy, yeah. It's one of the coolest things, I think, in sports and in world soccer to see that many people, yeah, uh, even on TV. I've, he- I've, I've heard, that, I know that Dortmund has some of the best fans in the world. I mean, hearing them during that game, you, you, you can feel it, the energy. So, I guess just lastly, wanted to know, what are your sort of goals here for the rest of the season uh right now i'm just trying to get uh get myself better improve as much as i can helping my teammates to improve every day in training by giving it my all and of course i would like to spend a few more uh, minutes on the field during games but that's all i can do is just try to prove myself to all the players and the coaches right now christian pulisic congratulations on your debut and thanks for speaking to the planet football podcast yeah no problem thank you very much Welcome back. Thank you, Grant and Christian Pulisic. Man, I I have a hard time believing that he's 17 years old, Grant. Uh, he just sounds so polished. I try and think back to what uh, what I or any of my friends sounded like at 17, uh, and it was not that. <laughs> yeah, no, very impressive uh, young guy um, who I think, you know, is remaining very focused on uh, on what's happening right now, which is very rare for a young American to be uh, playing real games in the Bundesliga for the second place team in the league and to have this opportunity. And, uh, you know, got to know his dad a little bit too. He took me to the train station and uh, he's a former indoor soccer player and coach, uh, Mark Pulisic. And, uh, you know, he's just trying to enjoy the whirlwind, both of them. Uh, you know, they're living. Uh, together in Germany and you know they've 
left their the rest of their family uh you know which is you know they're back in pennsylvania and that's certainly tough for anybody uh to have to do but this is christian pulisic's dream and and the dream is working out okay right now most certainly is um we'll see what what else he's able to do for the first team um you know in these in these next few weeks but definitely uh, an encouraging beginning to his professional career I uh, want to welcome in Brian Strauss. Brian, welcome uh, from the D.C. area. It's your birthday here too, man. Uh, it, it is. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Thank- birthday, Avi. Thank you, guys. Like we were talking about off air, uh, I, I beat Cristiano Ronaldo by one day. Um, <laughs> it's amazing how similar our lives have been ever since. But uh, yes. <laughs> anyway, thank you. I uh, want to talk about a... Uh, retiring U.S. men's national team player. We just talked about Pulisic's career starting. Stuart Holden, his career uh, officially over. He hasn't played since the 2013 Gold Cup final um, when he tore his ACL. Um, Brian, this look, he is he is admired and, and loved by just about everybody in the U.S. soccer community. There was a sense of celebration uh, when he announced his retirement. But it's it's one of the biggest what ifs for me, right? He he was so good when he was on his game and when he was healthy, um, and just just a career beset by injuries. Yeah, I mean he he was a uh, Bolton's Player of the Year, you know, uh, 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 an American who was a Player of the Year for for a, a Premier League club. Um, not only had uh, impressive technical skill, but uh, had a had a grit about him uh, that belied his size. And 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 like you said, just a guy who. For teammates, for media, for fans, was accessible and personable, and 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 just one of those dudes you never hear a hear a bad word about. Um, and so now, yeah, I mean, a great career, you know, went to a World Cup, uh, you know, won won two MLS Cups with Houston, uh, you know, will be a will will be well regarded at Bolton for a long time. Uh, but yes, a what if? And so you you go down the list of guys, starting with you know a guy like Steve Snow uh, to John O'Brien to Charlie Davies. Uh, you know, add add Stu to that list of, of guys who who were blessed with with wonderful skill and technique, but who, whose bodies ultimately betrayed them. Yeah, and and Grant, you've been able to to work with Stu a little bit, uh, doing some broadcast work on uh, on Fox Sports, which looks like he's going to be doing some more of that. He's he's been doing some broadcasting for ESPN for Fox. Uh, he seems like a natural in the position. I mean, he obviously knows the game very well, and and he seems just totally at peace. I mean, he, him and his wife just had a, a child. He said he was writing his retirement letter uh, to U.S. Soccer uh, as his wife was was going into labor, uh, yeah. which which I thought was fascinating. Um, it it just seems like a guy who is who is totally at peace where where things are, and and ultimately that's that's all that matters. Yeah. First off, congratulations to Stu Holden and Carolyn West uh, on the birth of their first child uh, this week. Uh, you know, as for. The what-if parts of Stu Holden's career, it seems like per capita, the U.S. has more of these examples than other countries when it comes to soccer. And the names that Brian mentioned uh, are among them, uh, you know, and uh, and so that's pretty tough, you know. Uh, when Stu Holden, at his best, is a guy who would be a definite starter for the U.S. national team. And you imagine the central midfield of him and Michael Bradley and uh, how long that could have been a, a really effective partnership. Uh, even through now. Um, I have worked with Stu a fair amount uh, in the last couple of years and, you know, have just learned more of what I already had kind of observed, which is everyone likes the guy. And, and you know, newsflash, not everyone in this business is a great guy or a great person, but 
Uh, he really is. Uh, and the outpouring of support you saw on social media uh, when he announced his retirement was pretty reflective of that. Um, just uh, uh, what you see is what you get kind of nice guy uh, who, who's a team guy as well. Um, and, you know, in broadcasting, I think he'll be very good. You know, um, you look at who, as far as ex-U.S. players has uh, advanced in the broadcasting profession recently, and uh, guys like Taylor Twellman and Kyle Martino unfortunately had to end their careers early uh, for various injuries, head injuries, uh, knee injuries. And they, you know, that's very sad, obviously, but it also gave them uh, a bit of a head start uh, in the broadcasting business. And uh, Stu does good work for Fox and ESPN, and, and I think he'll be a, a big part of the soccer community in the U.S. moving forward in that role. Absolutely. I want to mention that he also played a handful of games for my Sheffield Wednesday in 2013, which just adds to his legend. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If if there's one, uh, I don't know if silver lining is is the right word, but um, I I find it kind of fitting that in his last game, the U.S. lifted a trophy. Right. I mean, they won that Gold Cup in that final against Panama. Um, He was on the stage and, and part of the trophy celebration. Obviously not how he would have wanted his playing career to end, um, but few people can say that in their last games they, they won a title. Uh, so there's there's something uh, to be said for that. Um, so again, congratulations to, to Stuart Holden on on his new child and, and new uh, page in, uh, in life. Um, with the, the current group of U.S. men's national team players, they beat Iceland 3-2. Um, entertaining game. Uh you know, we, we talked about this last week, not a whole lot of grand, uh, you know, thematic things we can take away from January friendlies as, as we've learned in the past, uh, especially with Iceland, you know, bringing a, a glorified B team. Uh, but it's a win, and, and the U.S. started to build momentum. Um, Brian, that, that game going forward, uh, what is what, if anything, can the U.S. take from that uh, going against Canada and then into World Cup qualifiers? Uh, I think they can take. I mean, I, Iceland was was slow and passive and and not very impressive. Um, but that being said, the U.S. dominated the ball. I mean, to to see this team uh, under Klinsman, uh, you know, establish such a, a significant advantage in possession, uh, to 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 start develop ha- developing habits of of making runs in between lines, of of of, of guys making smart decisions with the ball, of, of learning how to create space against a team that's playing very compactly. Um, e- even if you're not under duress and you're and 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 the other team isn't that threatening, um, t- to start to think about those kinds of runs and 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 think about those kinds of patterns of play and develop some of those habits can only be a good thing for a team that we've seen too too frequently recently uh, struggle to impose itself on an opponent. And to, to to sort of carry the play and carry the ball. So um, you know, I again, uh, as you said, hard to take any sort of grand conclusions from it. But as an exercise in terms of looking uh, look looking for the sorts of runs and the sorts of players that might help them keep the ball and make some better decisions, I think it was good. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, uh, Michael Bradley played well. Lean Win played well. Um, you know, we saw uh, uh, Josie Altador. Uh, make some good decisions, stay active, stay connected. Uh, these are all sort of good signs going into a big year. Um, against Canada, uh, maybe we'll see some of the younger players get a, get a bit more of a run. I was maybe slightly surprised uh, that Klinsman relied so heavily on veterans uh, against Iceland. 
uh, and with the, the sort of the do or die qualifier coming up for the U23s against Colombia, uh, maybe we see um, some of the younger guys get sent out against Canada and gun for that uh, inevitable 0-0 draw. <laughs> it's the safest bet in sports. Um, it's the last three friend, the last three friendlies between the teams have ended zero, zero. So we're not making this up. We are doing what we can to put the reverse hex on this and make it a four, three game with Kellen Acosta <laughs> scoring a goal like Jamie Vardy. That's essentially what's going to happen now. So you're welcome world. Uh, <laughs> of those younger players, I thought Jerome Casavetta played fantastically off the bench. He, he provided such a spark immediately. You know, you, you find a lot of guys that come in and, and it takes a few minutes to, to kind of find their footing. He came in, and, and within a couple of minutes, he was already setting up a, up a couple of chances. Uh, Jor- Jordan Morris also brought brought some energy, I thought. Um, they're just guys that, that they're always looking to score or looking to create for someone else to score. Um, and that, you know, they don't need to start right away. And I think people forget that. Like, there's a lot of value in having guys who can come off the bench in the final 30 minutes of a game and, and make an impact. And those are two guys, uh, against Iceland anyway, that did that. Yeah, I think he's better especially. I mean, he's he's he's... He's very direct. He's very confident. He's strong. He's quick. He's he plays on the wing as well, so he's comfortable, sort of in that channel where he's able to get behind guys and get a cross in, and 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 he sort of sees the field that way. Um, and yeah, I mean, going forward, uh, if you have a guy, uh, you know, if you have an attacking player that sort of robust. Uh, who can come in and 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 is always looking to get forward, is always looking to take players on, um, you know, has a bit more uh, comfort in the penalty area, perhaps a bit more strength uh, than some of the other quicker options Klinsman has. He's a guy you'd love to sort of see, you know, you know, like, like you said, last 15, 20, 25 minutes of a game, you need a goal. I mean, he's someone who can create some havoc. So, you know, his partnership with Jordan Morris is going to be massive against Colombia. I mean, it's just it's going to be crucial. Uh, they were the leading scorers for the U.S. in the in the qualifying tournament. And so, you know, perhaps they get uh, some more time together against Canada just to sort of sort of continue to build some momentum heading into those games in March. Yeah. One thing I'd point out is that because they came into camp later than the rest, Jordan Morris and Darlington Nagby did not start against Iceland. And if they had come in at the same time as everyone else, I think they might have started. And, um, you know, clearly uh, Nagby and Morris are two guys who this year could have gigantic roles with the U.S. team. So I'm kind of hoping we get to see uh, a bit more of them against Canada uh, and see what they can bring to the table. Yeah, I think that's what you want to see in, in these friendlies. These are showcase times to to try out combinations like that. Interesting that they could have great years together for the national team, but they will be bitter rivals in MLS uh, in Cascadia. Uh, one player who uh, who did play for the U.S. against Iceland, Jermaine Jones. And Grant, I want to talk to you about his his club situation. Obviously, he's, he's got the six-game MLS ban. He's out of contract. He's apparently getting lowballed by the New England Revolution. Um, he has said that German teams are are being scared off by the suspension because it pertains to, to any club that he he signs with. What's what's the deal here? What's I mean? What's ultimately going? To, can the U.S. continue to play a guy who's not on a team? Well, Jurgen Klinsmann will because he loves Jermaine Jones uh, and has good reason to in a lot of ways. Um, that said, Jermaine Jones needs to get his club situation resolved. You know, he's unattached right now. It's a very strange situation. Very little chance he's going to return to New England. Uh, and, you know, look, he got a more uh, severe suspension than Clint Dempsey did uh, for his stuff last year uh, with the referee in the Portland-Seattle game. 
Um, and yet at the same time, Jermaine Jones is responsible for what he did. No one put a gun to his head and said, you've got to go and, and make contact with Mark Geiger at the end of a playoff game. So, you know, this is a suspension that he earned and that's the situation. So he's got to make the best of it. I would think that there's, there's MLS teams out there that will want to have Jermaine Jones. The question is how much are they willing to pay for him? And right now, uh, it's a bit of a tough spot for him. Uh, probably thinks he's worth a lot more than what he'll eventually get, but it's hard to envision him going somewhere outside of MLS at this point. Yeah, Jones Jones tweeted a, a while back that he was uh, offered less than 20% uh, of what he made last year. Uh, his guaranteed compensation last year was $3 million. So he could be talking about a, you know, a $500,000 a year offer. Uh, you know, for a, a 34-year-old midfielder with a, a lot of mileage on him and, and, and a six-game suspension hanging over his head. And, and he may not find that much money anywhere else. So, uh, you know, if, if he can't sort of swallow his pride a little bit and, and, and realize that he's got, a, he's got a place to play in New England, then maybe uh, they'll be able to execute a trade for him. But uh, it's hard to imagine, uh, considering the budget constraints that MLS clubs are under, uh, someone offering him too much more than half a million dollars at this point. Speaking of MLS budget constraints, there is no team better uh, navigating that treacherous path than the LA Galaxy. Um, Grant, their their signings, and, and there's a lot of good detail in the Los Angeles Times. Kevin Baxter wrote about this, um, how they were able to, to sign all these players. Ashley Cole, Nigel DeYoung, Jelly uh, Van Damme, this, this trio of players who normally you would think would cost a, a ton of money is costing them less than they spent on Omar Gonzalez last year. Uh, but this kind of makes them the supervillains in, in MLS once again, yes? Well, yeah, this is genius on the part of Bruce Arena. It's also evil genius on the part of Bruce Arena. When you look at uh, getting those three guys for $1.3 million this season, less than what Omar Gonzalez was making, that's sort of incredible. And yes, there's some jujitsu involved with these contracts. Uh, the players did get payouts from their previous clubs to... Uh, buy out their contracts, so that made them maybe a little more willing to take less money this season. Nigel DeYoung, uh, if the LA Galaxy exercises his option in the future, will be a designated player in a way that he's not this year because they'll have room for a DP with Steven Gerrard set to retire after this season. Um, so you know, Bruce Arena does it again. Uh, at the same time here, I think it's a fair question to ask on some of the characters that they brought into the Galaxy here, and this is where the Galaxy are definitely villains in this league now. If they weren't before, they are now. And uh, you look at uh, Nigel de Jong and Jelly Van Dam are in some ways best known to American fans for perpetrating horrible offenses against American players over the years, whether it's Nigel de Jong breaking Stu Holden's leg back in 2010 with a tackle that was just awful in a friendly between the U.S. and the Netherlands, or Jelly Van Dam being accused of uh, saying racist things to Gucci Onyewu on the field in a Belgian league game, causing Onyewu to sue him at one point and withdraw the lawsuit when Van Damme apologized for it. Now, Bruce Arena came out and said uh, when they signed Van Damme that uh, he spoke to Gucci Onyewu about this uh, and, and apparently got his blessing of some sort. Uh, I'd be curious to know how Stu Holden feels about Nigel Dion coming to the Galaxy. Uh, I do remember that the day after that horrible incident when DeYoung broke Holden's leg, 
they were both at the airport in Amsterdam on the same flight back to Manchester, and Nigel de Jong did not say a word to Stu Holden, didn't apologize, didn't uh, show that he cared for what he had done. And uh, so Nigel de Jong, uh, you know, we've seen plenty of other instances in his past where he's broken players' legs, where he has done a flying karate kick to the rib cage of Xabi Alonso in the 2010 World Cup final. And clearly, uh, if he's doing those types of things in MLS, that's going to be a flashpoint. For sure. Uh, it is important to recognize that, aside from all of that, he's a very good defensive midfielder. Um, yeah, but true. But it, you raise a, a, lot of, a lot of red flags, and, and it definitely is, is cause for, you know, when you're looking at the fan base that MLS appeals to, uh, you bring in these guys who have these, uh, you know, negative moments with players that are, are, you know, beloved in a lot of ways in the U.S. soccer community, and it, and it does raise an, an eyebrow or two. Um, Brian, any other, any other moves? There uh, have been a lot of moves recently um, in, in MLS, a lot of players coming in. Uh, any other ones that, that stand out for you before we, uh, before we wrap this one up today? Uh, yeah, I was a bit sorry to see uh, Christian Namath go uh, to, uh, uh, to Qatar. Um, you know, he was a lot of fun to watch, uh, a really electrifying player, creative, um, got a chance to chat with him briefly after, uh, sporting Kansas city won the, uh, open cup final and, uh, you know, just thought he was a, a cool guy. Um, fun to talk to, uh, really seemed to be happy playing in, 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 in Kansas city. Uh, but, uh, you know, didn't, didn't like the contract he had and, and felt he had a better opportunity in Qatar, not only financially, but to sort of stay in frame. Uh, for Hungary's Euro bid this summer, and and um, you know now now Sporting uh, has got a hold of Phil. I mean, they did sign Brad Davis and Justin Mapp, uh, you know, two veteran outside midfielders uh, over the winter. Uh, but neither of them re- really at this point in their careers offer offers what Namath did. So uh, you know, some work to do for Peter Vermees and and a guy who uh, had had one good season in MLS and was fun to watch. But that's the that's the market and that's the way things go. For sure, Namath. I think he scored on his first seven shots on target with Sporting Kansas City, um, which was which was phenomenal. He was an electric player to watch. Um, I mean, I'm sure Sporting Kansas City made out okay on the financial side. Um, you know, with yes. with this transfer, which which we'll see how they reinvest. Um, they also loaned Eric Palmer Brown to Porto, which uh, I think is is kind of huge news. I mean, Porto has been this this breeding ground of of success for a lot of Mexican national team players. Uh, Palmer Brown, 18 years old. Grant, you reported uh, a couple years ago, Juventus bid a million dollars for him, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you look at, at his future and there's a lot of, you know, promising aspects to Eric Palmer Brown. We've also seen him in MLS some the last couple of years and realize he's not a finished product. He's 18 years old. Uh, and yet this is an exciting, promising move uh, coming right around the time Matt Miazga sold to Chelsea. Uh, I'll be curious to see how much playing time Palmer Palmer Brown gets at Porto. Is this more of a training type thing? Is he going to play with their reserve team? Um, but as far as I understand it, he's in the last year of his MLS deal, and so he may not come back to MLS, but here's another example of a U.S. player, a young center back, moving to Europe. Exactly. And Matt Miazga, of course, moving to Chelsea, was included in their Champions League uh, roster, which which is impressive uh you know whether he plays or not is, is another story altogether but we could be seeing miazga versus ibra uh in the round of 16 now wouldn't that be something um want to put a wrap on this week's podcast thank you guys so much for joining us ben littleton earlier on christian pulisic from brucia dorman 
Grant Wall, Brian Strauss, our producer, Alex Admos, who also, if you have not gotten a chance to listen to it yet, put together this amazing oral history of the Rams-Titans Super Bowl that ended at the one-yard line. Uh, definitely check that out on si.com slash podcast. Uh, we love any of your feedback, uh, any players you want us to try and interview. Uh, we will do the best to do that. Uh, so give us any of those comments on our SoundCloud page, on Stitcher, on Planet Football, on Twitter, anywhere. Just find us. Uh, and that's that. So until next week, I'm Avi Creditor. We'll talk to you next time on the Planet Football Podcast. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.